good morning to each one. It is good to see you, and I encourage you to take now the Bible, God's Word, this great deposit that He has entrusted into the hands of men and women, boys and girls, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are getting there, 16 chapters in this epistle, and um, yeah, we're getting there. We uh, shifted gears a little bit and have sped through uh, a couple of sections, but um, I think that's been all right. I think uh, as we have handled this book and probed the many themes and lessons and principles that emerge from it, that the Spirit of God has been speaking to us as a church body, and this has been a joy and a wonder and something I'm anticipating right through to the end, but... uh, It's good to see all those chapters in the review review mirror, so to speak, and realize that there are but a few chapters yet ahead, but uh, a couple of difficult chapters. So I trust we are praying and seeking the Lord's wisdom as we continue to delve into this important portion of his word. I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in the 12th chapter, the 12th verse. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the hand, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. And the excellent way, of course, is the 13th chapter. But we're still on the less than excellent way, which Paul has been unpacking uh, to this point. Uh, brief question to begin with. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
For most of us, that might seem like a bit of an obvious question, obvious answer, but I think it's a good place to begin this morning. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you take an individual, man, woman, boy, girl, who to some degree comes under conviction for sin, right? Realizes they've lived a less than perfect life. And as a matter of fact, have offended God in quite a number of ways. Realize that there is a day of judgment coming. Day of reckoning. They will give an account. And uh, by the work of God's grace, sovereign grace, by work of the Spirit, they understand that on that judgment day, they're not going to be able to stand by themselves before God. They're not going to be able to get up there before God's throne and claim this or claim that as a reason as to why God should accept them into heaven. They're not going to be able to claim their own righteousness or goodness because there is none good. No, not one says the Bible. And so who's a Christian? A Christian again is that man, that woman, that boy, that girl who looks away from himself to the Lord Jesus and understands that the Lord Jesus is a perfect man. The Lord Jesus was perfectly obedient here on earth. The Lord Jesus paid the penalty for his sins, my sins. And this individual, the Christian, therefore, believes in the Lord Jesus. Believing in the Lord Jesus, this person becomes one with Christ Jesus. And it is on that basis, on that coming judgment day, and that basis alone that we will find forgiveness of sins and hope for eternal life and acceptance with God himself on the basis of Christ's finished work. And the fact that we'll be able to stand before God and simply say, I am one with Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's everything. We sing that song once in a while. All I have is, all I have is Christ. That's it. We've got nothing else. Uh, this is our identity. It's everything. It's who we are. We are Christ followers. We are Christians. And therefore, our entire identity, our purpose in being, our thoughts and affections and our actions, everything is dictated by Christ. The problem, however, we face many problems, but one problem in particular, however, that we face as Christians is this. If we are not very careful... And I do mean very, very, very careful. Uh, we face the temptation daily of seeking that identity in something else. We can so quickly lose sight of what it means to be in Christ and seek our identity in other things. I'm speaking as a Christian. We can seek it in our ministries, whatever they might be. In causes, you fill in the blank. Leaders, movements, opinions, ideologies. And we can attach our identity to these things. And when we do, we end up attaching our spirituality to these things. And these things become what among God's people? Status symbols. It is what plagued the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago. This is where they were living. This was the world in which they were operating and functioning. Christians, those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus, 
united with him, one with him. But these men and women, they were looking to so many different things. Seeking their identity in this, seeking their identity in that, turning this into a status symbol, that into a status symbol, defining their spirituality on things other than Christ. And as a result, they were a church in chaos. In our chapter, the 12th chapter, that thing in particular that is in view is spiritual gifts. Uh, One is saying to himself, well, look, I have the gift of uttering prophecies. You don't. Another is saying, I have the gift of teaching. You poor thing, you don't. I have the gift of tongues, various kinds of tongues. You don't. I have the gift of wisdom and knowledge. You don't. And they were attaching their identity to these things. They actually thought that these things were a further manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit in them that somehow accounted for their superior spiritual status. And as a result, they were looking down their noses at their fellow brothers and sisters. I have this, you don't. And therefore, there is this power play occurring within the church at Corinth The answer Paul puts before them to deal with this problem is summed up in verse 13 of chapter 12. It's a succinct, beautiful statement packed with truth and significance. In one spirit. How many spirits, folks? One spirit. We were all. How many of us? All baptized into how many bodies? One body. If they could just get their minds around this fundamental truth, there is one spirit, there is one body, and all believers have been baptized in the one spirit into the one body. That is what makes us spiritual in the sight of God. The fact that we are part of The body of Christ. The spiritual gifts have absolutely nothing to do with it. The leader you happen to be following has nothing to do with it. The cause you're championing, completely irrelevant. The ministry and activity you've given your life to does not come into play. We are who we are. Our entire identity, spirituality, status, if you like, in the sight of God for one reason, one reason alone. Christ has baptized all of us in One spirit into one body. It is a once for all experience that occurs when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist spoke of it. Listen carefully to this. It's recorded in Mark 1. There he is. He sees the Lord Jesus coming and he declares, I have baptized you with water, but he he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, just prior to his ascension, Acts 1, said to his disciples, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in Acts 11, as Peter reflected on Pentecost and the experience of the early church, he uttered the following words. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, so he quotes the Lord's promise as fulfilled how he said, John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Future from John's perspective, future from Christ's perspective, past from Peter's perspective. Because it is a historical event. It is the day of Pentecost. It is the birth of the church. And absolutely every believer, man, woman, boy, girl, who has come to saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ has been baptized by Christ in or with the Spirit into the body of Christ. Christ is the agent. He does the baptizing. He's the agent by which this baptism occurs. The Spirit is the element in which this baptism occurs. And identity in one body is the purpose for which it occurs. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This is why on that rare occasion, it hasn't happened very often, but more often than I wish it had happened, an individual has come to me and said, Stephen, have you been baptized with the spirit? And I've bit my tongue. I said, of course I am. What do you think it means to be a Christian? You can't be a Christian without being baptized in the Spirit. To be a Christian is to be baptized by Christ in one Spirit, into one body. This is what it is. Christ is the agent by which this baptism occurs. The Spirit is the element in which it occurs. And identity in one body is the purpose for which it occurs. I realize this is confusing and I'm stepping over here a little bit. I'm going to get off on a tangent and I hope I don't create more confusion, but can bring some clarity to the discussion. And it, it really, I wasn't planning on going down this, this road until Wednesday night. We were in our care group and it, and it came up and I, and I thought to myself, you know, if it's, if it's coming up in one care group, it might be coming up in other care groups. If it's coming up in a care group, if, some, you know, if we're kind of discussing it here, then maybe other people are discussing it here and are, are not that clear on it. Are, are, are we clear? And, and I actually thought to, began to think to myself, have I ever really even broken this down and explained it well? And I hope I have, but I can't remember when I did, but I'm going to assume I have in the past at some point, maybe. Do we understand the difference between being baptized in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, they're not the same thing. For a lot of people, they are. They confuse the two. They're synonymous expressions. They're not synonymous expressions. They're completely different things. Baptism in the Spirit is an historical reality. To be baptized in the Spirit is a position. It is to be a Christian. It is for the Lord Jesus to take an individual, he himself, and baptize them in the spirit, thereby making that individual part of his spiritual body. If you're a Christian, that's you. You have been baptized. Whether you realize it or not, you have been baptized by Christ with the spirit into his body. And we form, therefore, one body as believers. We're never commanded in scripture to be baptized in the spirit. Because it's not something we do. We are, however, in Ephesians 5.18, commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which is very different. To be filled by the Spirit is to live under His direction and influence. If you want a profitable study on this, look up Luke, because other than Paul, Luke is the only biblical author that ever speaks of being filled with the Spirit. If my memory isn't failing me, I think it's four or five times in the book of Luke and almost a dozen times in the book of Acts. He speaks of being filled. 
And so the angel declares that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Ananias informs Paul that God has sent him so that he may regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and Paul are at times described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. The men chosen to serve in the distribution of the food. Remember in Acts 6, the deacons are full of the spirit and of wisdom. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit as he's being stoned and gazes into heaven and sees the glory of God. Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It is not the same thing as baptism in the spirit. Baptism is positional. It is incorporation into the body of Christ. Filling, it should be normative for the believer. And that's why Paul commands us in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Meaning we are to live under his direction. What is the great mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit? How do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit, well, let me begin with what isn't the mark. It isn't the spiritual gifts. It's not the mark of being filled with the Spirit. So many people today think it is. It most certainly isn't. The Corinthians had all sorts of gifts, but they weren't actually filled with the Spirit, were they? They're a bunch of sinners. I mean, it's just this, 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 the shocking, the condition this church is in. And yet they've got, they've got gifts coming out of their ears. There's no sign that they were actually filled with the Spirit. What is the great sign or mark that we're filled with the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. It's Galatians 5, 22, 23. If you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, don't go looking for exceptional experiences in the inexplicable. Simply look for Christ-like character. Simply look for the fruit as is detailed there so perfectly for us in Galatians 5. Uh, that is what it means to be filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And how does this come about? What is the means? Paul commands us again, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the parallel passage in Colossians, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. They're parallel passages. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I repeat, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Or what is the means by which we are filled with the Spirit? It is by this word indwelling, reigning, and ruling in us. That as we live our lives saturated in this word, that as God's word takes hold, takes root, and is formative in our lives, that as God's word is the determining factor in our lives, it dwells in us, and we are filled with the spirit. It becomes the means by which the spirit of God conforms us to the likeness of Christ, thereby producing that fruit of the spirit, that evidence of filling. Oh, I hope that has brought some clarity, but do not confuse it with the baptism of the spirit. I'm going to ask some of you after the meeting, I'm going to pick up the phone and call some of you this week. Even after I've moved back to Canada, I'm going to get in touch with some of you and I'm going to say, are you baptized in the spirit? And you better say yes. <laughs> what it means to be a Christian. 
I'm a Christian. It means the Lord Jesus Christ has taken hold of me and he himself has baptized me in the spirit into his body. Corinthians don't get it. They've lost sight of it. Ooh, look at me. I'm speaking in tongues. Ooh, look at me. I have this gift. I have that gift. Ooh, look at me. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. Ooh, look at me. I'm eating the temple meat, sacrificed to idols. Isn't Christian liberty wonderful? Ooh, look at me. I'm an ascetic. I'm not going to get married. I'm going to live a life out there in the caves or something. Just great self-deprivation. Look how spiritual I am. Special I am. How lucky God is to have me on the team. And this is my stat on poor you. Poor, poor, poor you. You don't share these experiences. You just don't measure up the same to me. And well, the chaos, the resulting chaos in the church at Corinth. And as it pertains then to these gifts, Paul just sets the record straight with that single statement. Verse 13, there it is again. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The expression one spirit worked backwards all the way to verse one. He unpacks it, right? So the verse sort of stands there at the center of the chapter. You've got it. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You go backwards, back to verse 1. He unpacks what that means, one spirit, one body, you move forward. And he unpacks that all the way to the end of the chapter. And he basically makes four points. Here they are. Point number one concerning this one body. Each of us, don't miss it, don't ever forget it. Each of us is part of the body. This speaks to those who feel insignificant. Oh, it most certainly does. And this is what he goes on to say in verses 14 through 20. Some are thinking to themselves, I'm a foot. Oh, I'm a foot. If only my kingdom to be an eye. If only I were an eye. Well, I'm an eye. Oh, if only I were a hand. Look at that hand over there. I can do such wonderful things. I'm so gifted. I'm a hand. If only I were a foot. I'm not sure anybody wanted to be a foot but if only I were an ankle or something, I don't know. But you get the idea. This is what Paul says, verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We all made a drink of one spirit for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, oh, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. He is speaking to that individual who is guilty of comparing himself, comparing herself to death. I'm not like him. I'm not like her. I don't do what she does. I'm not as gifted as he is. Poor me. I'm inconsequential. Maybe I'm not even part of the body. That's the individual to whom Paul speaks in these verses. His point is very simple because he brackets it. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And sandwiched between that single point, he <coughs> declares each part belongs to the body. And look at what he says in verse 18. And God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them, every single one of them, as he, as he chose. So the text speaks to those who feel 
insignificant. And the great truth that must echo in our minds and our ears is this. Each of us is part of the body. The second point is this. Each of us contributes to the body. Verses 21 through 24, more or less. And here Paul is speaking to those who feel independent, self-sufficient. I'm an I. I don't need the hand. I'm a hand. I don't need the foot. I'm a foot. I don't need the eye. And so he's referencing those people. He's referring to those who have adopted this mentality whereby they think they can make it on their own. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, he goes on to mention three categories. He mentions the weaker parts, verse 22, the less honorable parts, verse 23, and even, yes, it's his language, the unpresentable parts in verse 23. And his point is what? That even the weaker, the less honorable, and the unpresentable, they all play a pivotal role and fulfill an extremely important function in the body as a whole. And the body cannot survive long. The body most certainly cannot function well unless each part is contributing what it brings to the body as an individual part. Oh, removed from the body, Paul's point is this. An individual member is useless. A foot cannot make it on its own without the hand. The hand cannot make it on its own without the eye. And the eye cannot make it on its own without the foot. This even applies to the weaker, the less honorable, and the unpresentable. And so when I start thinking to myself, well, I'm a self-made man independent, don't need anybody. That is completely antithetical to the gospel of Christ and the very existence and the purpose for which the church exists. Even the weakest member is needed. Even the most insignificant part as we take stock of our bodies is essential to the functioning of the whole. And if I am ignoring what I perceive to be less important parts or parts that are certainly of less consequence and significance than me, then I am guilty of adopting this independent spirit and not truly understanding the function and the purpose for which this body exists. Each of us contributes to the whole. Paul's third point is this. Each of us cares for the body. Still in verse 24 a little bit certainly into verses 25 and 26. And here he seems to be targeting those who feel isolated, detached. I'm a hand. The foot has no idea what problems I handle every day. I'm an eye. The hand has no idea, no idea what troubles I see. I'm a foot. The eye has no idea what burdens I bear. This person feels as though he's on her own, on his own. What does Paul say? Paul's point in these verses is simply this. God has so composed the body that interdependency is absolutely essential and fundamental to the function of the body. What does he say there in 25? That there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. When I stub my toe in the dead of the night, and it happens occasionally, my back bends, my hands reach, my fingers clutch, my eyes tear, my lips purse, my brow furrows, my voice cracks, my whole body is involved. Whole body is involved because there is mutual care and dependency one upon another. Conversely, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So he has spoken. He's spoken to the insignificant. He has spoken to the independent. He's addressed the isolated. And now his chief point in the context of the chapter, in the context of the epistle as a whole, he speaks to the entitled. The best to last. Or I guess I suppose the worst to last. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, in this body, So he makes a comparison now between the individual parts and the gifts. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? It's a rhetorical question. No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, 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 no. Paul's point is what? Then please stop feeling entitled. Stop turning these things into some kind of spiritual status. Stop tearing the church apart over these things. Oh, you see, Paul, I occupy a more important place in the church than some of my fellow brothers and sisters. I have the gift of uttering wisdom. I have the gift of tongues. I have the gift of teaching. They don't have these gifts. Thus, I am more spiritual than they are. And Paul's point is threefold. Number one, he wants them to get this and he wants them to get it good. Number one, remember, please, God has appointed the gifts. It's right there in verse 28. God has appointed in the church. His second point is this. We possess different gifts. And his third point is this, verse 31. And we should follow still a still more Excellent way. Oh, verse 31 is complex, folks. Verse 31 is tricky. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. I have heard that often interpreted to mean, well, look, see, the gifts are ranked. And some gifts are more important than other gifts. And therefore, we should seek the more important gifts. If that is what Paul is arguing, he has completely undermined his entire message in the epistle. Not what he's saying. So some go back into verse 28 and they say, well, hang on a second. He's actually enumerated them. He said, look, we got first, we got apostles, then we got prophets, then we have teachers, and then all these other ones down here, miracles, healings, helps, administration, tongues, all that sort of thing. So Paul himself has ranked them. That is what Paul is doing. And he's completely defeated his own argument. That's not what he's doing. I think Paul is simply explaining the chronological priority of these gifts in the life of a church in his own experience to get a church going. What was necessary? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then yes, everything else to come along and help edify and build up the church. This is not some sort of list of superiority. This is simply a chronological priority. 
And then when he says to them in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, I think there's a hint of irony there. And notice the contrast in the statement, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Yeah, go on. Whatever gifts you think it is, you've designated as being more superior. Yeah, you desire them. That's the way you've been functioning. And what does he say? And I, or but I, will show you. I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. And he brings them then into the 13th chapter. And he lays it before them. Love, love builds up. We have been baptized by Christ in the spirit into the body. The great mark of this body is love. And the great mark of love is a desire to edify, to strengthen, and to build up. And this is the more excellent way. Three things I want to say to us as a church, Grace Community Church, as we seek to apply this text. I mean, there are lots of lessons here, and hopefully we'll draw out some of these in our care groups on Wednesday night. But certainly three pivotal lessons, and they really, they really hang on the 27th verse. And, and it's easy to miss this as we kind of read through it and, and work rapidly through the text. So I just want to slow down there in verse 27 and hope you get it. Here it is. Listen to what Paul says here again. Now you, now just eyes back up here. To whom is he speaking? The church at Corinth. He's speaking to the church at Corinth. Now you, the church at Corinth, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, it is true when we think of the body of Christ being baptized by Christ in the spirit into the body of Christ, we are primarily thinking of the church universal. Believers above, believers of, below, believers of all centuries, of all places, of all times. Yes, the body of Christ. But even here, Paul is using it in a secondary sense, and he even sees the local church as what? The body of Christ. A local expression of a universal reality you, church at Corinth, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I therefore do not think I am off the mark. I think I'm well within the bounds of interpreting scripture to affirm to you this morning. You, Grace Community Church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Oh, the significance, threefold significance, three points I want us to get. Number one, this body, therefore, Grace Community Church, is our community. And therefore, it is our chief identity. It is our community. And it is our chief identity. Galatians 3.28, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that is into his body, have put on Christ. Christ saves us. So many of us need to hear this. Christ saves us individually to make us part of a community. Christian faith is not an individualistic faith. It is a communal faith. It is a communal reality. He saves us as individuals individually to make us part of a new community in which Christ is all and in all. We are part of this body, Grace Community Church, before we are part of anything else. It is our chief identity. And it begs the question, do I live like that? Is that my reality? 
That identity, what shapes me, molds me, compels me. Second point is this. That being the case, we are to strive to protect and preserve the unity of this body. Ephesians 4.3, Paul tells us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are not to tolerate moral evil. We are not to tolerate doctrinal evil. Neither are we to tolerate disputes which arise from envy, bitterness, and misunderstanding. Neither are we to tolerate those who seek to sow dissension and division. As a matter of fact, in each of those instances, we are to be very intolerable as we strive and work to maintain all that is within our God-given power and according to our God-given responsibility to preserve and keep the unity of this body. And woe to that individual who does not share that priority. Woe to that individual who would dare do anything to usurp it, to tear it apart, tear it down, tear it asunder. Woe to that individual who does not hold the body in such high esteem and this great calling to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, Paul says is very applicable. Philippians 2, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a great exhortation for me personally. Not to look out for our own interests, but the interests of others. You want to preserve unity? And we're to prefer to serve others rather than be served by them. We're to give our attention how we, to how we can help others rather than be helped by them. We're to expend our energy to edify others rather than be edified by them. If I am sitting around wringing my hands, bemoaning my lot in life, and wondering why someone isn't ministering to me or why she isn't doing this for me, he isn't doing that for me. I have a very skewed perspective on reality because the question, the fundamental question when it comes to preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is not what you are doing for me. It is what have I done lately for you? How am I serving you? How am I putting your interests ahead of my own, thereby contributing to the health of the body? Third point builds on it, but this I'll conclude. We're to contribute to the growth of this body. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. We are to grow up in every way. We need to hear the, use those words more often today. Grow up. I wish I could say it in far more instances than I have the nerve to. Grow up. It's time to grow up. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each, notice this phrase, when each part is working properly. Pivotal phrase. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Spirit distributes gifts to that end. As we use them, we grow up into Christ. And we become Christ's visible form in the world. 
reflecting his splendor, manifesting his glory, displaying his beauty, and mirroring his holiness. Now you, Grace Community Church, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Our Father, bless your word. We pray to our minds and hearts this day. As always, we ask you for understanding in all things. We seek the illuminating work of your spirit. We're so dependent upon the spirit to teach us by your word. And as always, we confess our own sins and shortcomings in the light of this text and pray that you would help us. We praise you for your patience and long-suffering and your attitude toward us. We praise you for that great blessing and of identity that you have lavished upon us, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. And help us, we pray, according to your fatherly care and power and wisdom uh, to live out that reality in our lives, to especially live it out in the context of this church body. May it be for your glory. May it be for the good of each one who is part of Grace Community Church. And we seek it from you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.